Well, last week we started our look at the book of 2 Thessalonians, and so we're looking at 2 Thessalonians again today, and we'll be looking at, at this book for the, uh, for the coming weeks. And in the midst of all the different things that we'll see as we look through the book of 2 Thessalonians, we'll be shown multiple future events. We'll be shown mul- multiple future things that, that the Lord has in store that He has graciously told us about ahead of time. And as we're still in the first chapter, one of the things that you could see that the Lord's doing through the Apostle Paul is setting a tone for our minds to understand something important that we'll look at here today, and that's this, the fact that our greatest hope is not in the here and now. So think about that statement for just a second, because we're going to elaborate on it as we look at this portion of Scripture today. Our greatest hope is not in the here and now. Look with me, if you would, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 5 today, and then I'm going to read down to verse 12. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 5, this is what it states. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today. And Lord, as we look at this portion of Your Word, we pray that You'd help our hearts to recognize that that our greatest hope is not in the here and now. So often that tends to be the, the governing mindset that that many of us in this world adopt. And Lord, when we look at this portion of Scripture, you show us that you have wonderful things in store for those who know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we would take heart as we look at this portion of Scripture together today, and that our hearts would be encouraged as we think about these things right now. We commit this time to you, Lord. We're grateful for it, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's an interesting verse in the book of Ecclesiastes that comes to my mind from time to time. It actually comes to my mind quite frequently. Um, It's a verse that I've actually been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, But before I share that specific verse with you, uh, I want to share a little bit about where my mind has been drifting in recent days, which can be a dangerous thing uh, to share, but I'm going to take that risk. Several months ago, a, a, a member of my family sent me uh, it was a, a, a link to a pretty brief video, and uh, as I was watching that video, I was fascinated to look at it because it made me very nostalgic. And it was a video, I guess it was like a home video 
that was put together by a group of teenagers uh, that, you know, th- so this video, by the way, was from the late 80s, all right? So this is when I was a teenager. And they had basically taken a video camera, and they were going around my home area on probably a Friday or Saturday. That's my guess. And they were going into stores and being kind of goofy. They were going, you know, they drove past uh, one of my favorite ice cream places from that season of life, and they, they went by there, and you could see it. And then they went into the mall, and they had the video camera with them. In the malls, they're going around. Now, I don't know any of these people that were in the video, but I actually felt like I did because I'm looking at all these familiar places. I'm looking at these people dressed in clothing that I used to own and used to wear and people going to all these different places that I used to go. And as I was watching this, I'm watching them having an absolute blast, even as they're driving around town in their junky car. And, and it's funny, they even panned on this one particular sign that says you're not al-. they tried to stop teenagers from cruising around town at one point because we made too much of a habit of it that they put up signs. And that fixed everything, right? They said, you're not allowed to drive past this spot more than two times in an hour. Okay. Who's, like, is there somebody sitting there with a clicker? You're like, all right, I see an Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra. That's one. That's one. Do that one more time in this hour, and that's it, you know? Everybody cruised just as much as they ever did, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And so I was watching that, and I was just enjoying seeing them have an absolute blast. And I even enjoyed the music that they had playing on in the background. And again, I don't know a single person in that video, but I felt like I did as I was watching it. And I've watched it probably three or four times now. But I miss those sights and sounds. I miss it. It made me very nostalgic for that season of life. It made me very nostalgic for those sights and those sounds. And with our current societal state, the way everything is right now, uh, it made me nostalgic for living like that. You know, and I don't typically, I'm not one of those people that looks back at my teenage years and say, and I never advise a teenager and say, this is the best time of your life. I got to tell you, it was, it is not the best time of your life. I, you know, I'm in my forties now and I could tell you, it keeps getting better. I, I, it, it really does. I would not go back to that season for a lengthy period, but I would go back for a Friday. I would go back for a Friday. And every time I watch that video, I, I look at that and I'm like, man, I'd go back for one day of it, you know, one day of it not a week of it, a day of it, right? But then I mentioned to you a moment ago a verse that comes to my mind from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. We're told, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. So why do you suppose Scripture tells us don't long for the good old days, which I find myself so frequently doing, right? When I, when I look at that or when other things come up or just a familiar sight and sound or, or whatever it may be. Why do we do that and why does Scripture tell us not to do that? Well, I'm suppo- I, I suppose there are probably several reasons why Scripture tells us that it's not wise to, to long for those days in an unhealthy way. It's not saying you can't be nostalgic from time to time, but it's saying don't spend your life saying everything was better then, everything was better then, etc., etc. And I think a big reason for that is because the Lord doesn't want us just keeping our minds in the past because He's got a great future in store for you and me. It's a wonderful future that the Lord's got in store for you and me, and since that's absolutely true, our heart shouldn't be anchored back there Our heart should be looking forward to what the Lord has in store. And I bring that up even before we dig into the text that we're looking at together today, because isn't that what the Apostle Paul is revealing when he talks about these things in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? He's talking about what's coming up ahead. He's talking about what's on the horizon, the good things that the Lord has in store. And he's reminding us that our greatest hope is in Jesus. 
And so in the midst of all of that, we get to see some of the things that Christ is going to accomplish. Now, I want to show you a few things from this portion of Scripture. And the first, I want to reread verse 5 for us and mention this, that God has promised us a good life, not an easy one. God has promised us a good life, not an easy one. This is what it says. Look at verse 5. It says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now, it's a short verse. I'm going to read it again. But again, keep in mind, God's promised us a good life, not an easy one. Verse 5 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So just think, think about that for a second. Keep that in the back of your mind. One of the benefits that you and I enjoy as Christians living during this era of history is the example of Christians who have lived before us, those who have come before us. Many of us could probably testify to the, be- the benefits and the privilege of having grown up in a Christian family. And if you grew up in a Christian family, that was certainly a benefit and a blessing that the Lord shared with you. It's, something, it's, it's a great gift to be uh, raised in a context where following Christ is modeled for you. And you're shown what that looks like in very real ways. But even if you didn't grow up in that context, there are still generations of Christians who have lived the life of faith over the past 2,000 years that you can look to for examples and for ideas and for inspiration. So there are people who have come before us who have done this all before us that we can learn from. But for the church at Thessalonica that the Apostle Paul was sharing these words with, that wasn't something that they had the privilege to enjoy. That wasn't something they got to experience. So none of them grew up in Christian families, and none of them had generations of Christians in their community that they could look back to for ideas and examples and uh, and inspiration. They were the first generation of Christians in their families. They were the first generation of Christians in their city. There was no generation of Christians prior to them. And being that that was the case... In their context, they were also misunderstood. They were also oppressed, Scripture reveals to us. They also suffered greatly at the hands of those who hated Jesus. And, uh, and those, those people also despised the church. Those people resented the claims of the gospel. And the church at Thessalonica really had to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. But one of the things that the Thessalonians had straight in their minds, that we should also strive to under, understand, by the way, is the fact that God has promised us a good life, not an easy one. And what I mean by that, and what Paul is trying to get here, uh, get to here when he says, you know, when he illustrates this, he's illustrating this when he speaks of their suffering, but also the blessings of being part of the eternal kingdom of God. So he's showing them both aspects. He's acknowledging their suffering, but he's, but he's also reminding them of the blessing of being part of God's eternal kingdom. And the fact that this recently converted group, so keep in mind, this is a group of people that, that they, haven't, they haven't been believers for a, a terribly long period of time, and the generations that came before them in their context were not believers, so this is very new to them. But the fact that this recently converted group of believers was willing to endure all the things that they were enduring without abdicating their faith, it showed that God's judgment was just. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, as you look at this, through their testimony under trial, their identity as God's children was being confirmed. It was being shown in their context that their faith was real. 
It was genuine. A tested faith becomes a strong faith. A tested faith becomes a proven faith. And it was becoming very obvious in the midst of their culture that they indeed were God's children. Through Christ, they had been made worthy of this divine designation. These are the words that Paul's using in this particular context as he's describing what's going on. Their lives were confirming the internal change that Jesus had made within them. So this is something I think that we should take note of. And I recognize that in many respects, we all probably prefer to enjoy an easy life. (laughs) You know, I mean, did anyone complain yesterday when the weather wasn't humid? You know, does anyone wake up and say, oh, I hope it's humid today. I so hope it's humid today. I hope it makes my hair frizz, and what else? I hope I sweat all day, you know. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to, to my, my sisters, I have two baby sisters. They're not babies anymore, but they're my baby sisters. And uh, they were camping two and a half hours away from here. And I had most of yesterday open, so I just got in my car. Most of my family was doing stuff and working. I just got in my car, and I drove to their campsite without telling them I was coming. And uh, I just showed up. And when I got there, they were surprised, and we went and used boats, and we went and used, um, what else did we do? We played mini golf. There was a mini golf place nearby, and then we hung out around the fire and roasted corn. And the whole time, I was like, this is terrible. I don't like the way I'm resting and relaxing. This is miserable. I can't stand this life of ease as I sit on a comfortable chair on a beautiful day next to the woods with the wind blowing through, and it even smells good outside. No, I didn't complain about that a bit right? I enjoyed that moment of rest. I enjoyed that moment of ease. I even enjoyed the drive out and the drive back. It was restful to me. It was rejuvenating. So none of us complains about a life of ease. I think in many respects, we all want to experience a life of ease. And certainly when I feel overly stressed, I I seek it out. You know, I try and find something that's going to give me a little extra rest, a little boost in my stamina in some way. And I'm sure that at times we probably all daydream of earlier seasons, particularly when we're being tested. When you're going through a test, it's very natural to start thinking about, you know, earlier seasons of life that were a little bit easier. But again, God promises us a good life, not an easy one. There may be easy moments, but He doesn't promise you and I an easy life this side of heaven. He's never promised that in His Word. He does promise us wonderful things that are in store, but right here and now, He tells us things like, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you deal with, right? Through Jesus, though, we have a good life. It may not be an easy life, but it is a good life. So when the sun is shining and it's not humid, it's still a good life. When it's cloudy or when it's too hot or when it's too cold, it's still a good life. And even on our best days, God has confirmed that the future He has in store for us is better than anything we've experienced at present. And so you have the Apostle Paul setting up this portion of Scripture, talking about these types of things, even in the midst of acknowledging the fact that the Thessalonians were dealing with a season, a season of suffering. Now, the Scripture goes on and really gets into the crux of, of some very specific future details here. But when you look at the coming verses after this, it tells us in verses 6 through 10 that the day is coming when God's justice will be undeniable. The day is coming when God's justice will be undeniable. Look at verse 6 down to verse 10. There it says this, "...since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Jesus is coming back and he will restore all things when he does. And I still remember uh, the, the first time I learned about the fact that Jesus has promised to return. Still remember the first time that that was something that was explained to me, something that was shown to me. Um, as a young person, though, I remember thinking, I remember wondering to myself, um, is this something that I should be looking forward to or should I be afraid of it? And uh, I often wondered what the Lord would find me doing when he returned. Do you ever think about that? If the Lord chooses to return during your natural life, do you ever wonder what he'll find you doing? I've often wondered that. Uh, you know, what will the Lord find me doing? I really hope he comes on a Sunday morning at around 1030. I'd be like, I happen to be preaching your word, just for the record. You know? That would be a really good time on my weekly calendar. It would be a good time on your calendar, too, because you'd be like, here, we were there, Lord, you know, we're there, we're, we carved it out, right? <laughs> but I often wondered what the Lord would find me doing when he returned. And, uh, you know, I wondered if I'd be on the right path. I wondered if I would try to, to hide my face in shame because of embarrassment. These were things that, um, that I wondered. But in this passage, uh, Paul shared very specific pieces of information regarding future events that will surround the return of Jesus. And he started off by explaining to the Thessalonians that in that day, the Lord was going to repay those who were afflicting them. The Lord was going to repay those who were afflicting them. Now, truth be told, I don't wish for vengeance on those who oppress God's people. You know, I don't imagine, I, well, I don't know where your heart is, but I, I, I could just tell you where my heart is, and, and I imagine that probably plenty of you feel the same way I do, but I don't really wish for vengeance on those who oppress God's people. What I actually pray for is their repentance. And uh, I hope that you would pray along those lines as well, that, that the Lord would help them repent. But I do think part of why this information was shared with the church at Thessalonica was so that they understood they did not need to retaliate against those who were trying to oppress them. It wasn't their job to retaliate against those who were trying to hurt them. This was a matter that can be completely trusted to the Lord to handle in the fairest way possible. And so you have the Apostle Paul sharing these things as the Lord inspires him to write these things down. And Paul shared that the day was coming when all who trusted in Jesus Christ would be granted relief, complete relief. This will include relief from our struggles. This will include relief from our trials, relief from our pain, relief from any form of oppression. We will live in His presence for all eternity, and no harm will be inflicted upon us ever again. It's never going to be an issue ever again. That day is coming. These are the type of things that the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians to grasp and try to help, trying to help them to understand. But those who persist in their rejection of Christ can expect the exact opposite. Jesus came the first time in meekness. Now, when Scripture is using that term meekness, 
It's talking about having great power, but keeping it under control. It's not talking about being weak. Jesus came the first time in meekness, having great power, but keeping it under control. He most often veiled his power. Sometimes he would show his power. But most of the time during the course of his earthly ministry, he would veil his power. And he's given humanity thousands of years to repent of our unbelief. He's given us a couple thousand years to repent of our unbelief. But those who never come to the place of trusting him completely, those who never come to the place of surrendering their lives over to him, will experience his power and his wrath when he returns. That's what this scripture is making clear. This scripture makes it abundantly clear that they will suffer eternal punishment and will spend their eternity completely separated from the joys of the Lord's glory. It's very, very specific. It says a very, very um, painful thing to contemplate. And words are not minced in this portion of Scripture, so I'm not going to mince words from this pulpit. But I have to say, when I preach on passages like this, I often wonder what goes through people's minds. You know, when I come across something like this in the Scriptures that we're looking at on Sunday morning, I never skip it because it's there and it needs to be said, even though it's sometimes hard for us to want to acknowledge. But it's there, so I never skip it. But I always wonder what's going through people's minds. I wonder if this actually freaks people out a little bit when we look at a portion of Scripture like this. But I'm actually convinced that it's a good thing if it does. And what I mean by that is this. This passage is going to be fulfilled. This is going to be our day-to-day reality sooner than we realize. So it's okay if from time to time when we come across something in Scripture that, that jolts us. It's okay if it jolts us. It's okay if it does that. It's actually evidence that God's doing us a huge favor. Consider how gracious and merciful the Lord is in telling us about these specific things ahead of time. He's not telling you and I this ahead of time as an act of vindictiveness. He's telling us these things ahead of time because He wants to give us time to ponder these words. He wants us to be jolted out of the, the kind of, you know, the unhealthy rhythm we were in and start to see things as they really were. And in the meantime, He's showing us a high level of patience. The Lord's been showing me and you and everyone a high level of patience. And I believe that He's sharing us these warnings, or sharing with us these warnings ahead of time because He doesn't want us to experience eternal separation from Him. He doesn't want this to be something that, that people endure. He's graciously warning us and trying to wake us up and giving us time to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. I love what Scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. There it says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Think about what these verses are saying or what this verse is saying. The Lord's being patient. Why is He being patient? Well, He's being patient for our sake. He's being patient because He doesn't want us to be destroyed. He's being patient because He wants everyone to repent. Now, will everyone repent? No. Some people, this is their future. That's a very bleak future. For some people, this is all they will experience beyond their time here on earth. I think some people are in in subtle ways very conscious of that because in recent days, when people feel like their lives are threatened, you see what's going on in people's minds and hearts when they feel like their life might be in jeopardy, you get to see some things that you don't see under normal circumstances. 
And you get to see where people's hearts are at. And here, you know, Peter was saying in 2 Peter 3, 9, as the Holy Spirit inspired him to put these things down on, on paper, you know, that the Lord's not being slow about his promise. He's not being slow, but he is being patient because he doesn't want people to experience these things. And I think that's a big part of the reason why these things are even revealed here. Why this stark language is used, because it's meant to jolt us. It's meant to make us aware of things we would not naturally be aware. The day is coming when God's justice will be undeniable. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day is coming when God's justice will be completely undeniable. And on that day, where will you stand? Isn't that what we need to wrestle with when we look at a passage like this? It's not just theory for us to think about. It's something that we're supposed to take in a very personal way. On that day, where will I stand? On that day, where will you stand? Will we come before his throne as as one who has given our complete trust to Jesus Christ? Or will we come before him as one of the many who never had a relationship with Jesus Christ at all? We will come before him. But it's going to be in one of those contexts, either as one who's completely surrendered your life and your heart over to to Jesus Christ, or or as one who lived as if Jesus wasn't relevant to your life at all. And the Scripture is telling us these things ahead of time as evidence of God's grace and evidence of God's mercy. It's a gift to us from the Lord. Well, there's one other thing that the Apostle Paul brings out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that I want to point out to us today, and it's very important, even though it's only mentioned briefly here in verses 11 and 12, and that's this. Don't resent your refinement. As the Lord's refining you, don't resent it. It's actually a good thing. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the past two years, my sons and I have agreed to a small task that involves a little bit of commitment. It's not something that you can do with, without uh, you know, some level of commitment. We decided that we're going to do 100 push-ups every single day without exception throughout the course of the month of June. So, you know, we're partway through the month now. We've been keeping that. This is something um, that we do. This is something we did last year as well. This is our second year doing this. And we're gracious in the sense that we allow them to be done in segments, so you don't have to do 100 all in one shot. Some of you were like, wow, 100? You're thinking 100 in one shot. No, it's usually four sets of 25 or three sets of, you know, 33 plus one. You know, it's... it's, uh, it's a gracious way, but you got to do 100. And um, we noticed something last year, we're noticing again this year, that as you progress through the month of June doing those push-ups, they become easier to do. So at the start of the month, they're harder to do. As you get to the end of the month, you, you really do get to the spot, and this happened to us last year, you get to the end of the month where you could do all 100 in one shot. And you just kind of, you just work your way through the month, and by the end of the month, you're like, all right, There's the 100, all in one shot. And what's happening is, in that process, our bodies are being gradually refined. And that process makes us stronger as our bodies are being tested. We should probably keep that up every month, right? But 
We do it for June, and then we get lazy for 11 months, and then we jump back on. And in June, we're going to regain our strength, right? But I actually think, you know, when you think about the refinement process that, that you go through when you're trying to do some level of exercise, I actually think that's a microcosm of what the Lord's actually accomplishing in our lives at present. He's refining us. He's strengthening us. He's using your experiences and my experience to teach us things. He's, he's speaking to us through His Spirit. He's speaking to us through His Word. He's directly blessing us with His power through His indwelling presence. These are things that the Lord's accomplishing for us as He refines us. Paul understood this, and he wanted to make sure that the Thessalonians knew that he was praying that the Lord would accomplish this level of refinement in their lives. He prayed for them with great regularly, that they would grow in holiness and maturity. Do you pray that for yourself, that you'd grow in holiness and maturity? Do you pray that for your spouse, that your spouse would grow in holiness and maturity? Do you pray that for your children and your grandchildren, that they would grow in holiness and maturity? These are the type of things that the Apostle Paul was praying for the Thessalonians, that they'd grow in. These are the type of things we could pray for ourselves and those that we love. And our church family in general can pray that for each other, that we would grow in holiness, that we would grow in maturity, that we would be refined in such a way. Paul prayed that, that the good works that the Lord was doing in their lives would be brought to fruition so that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified among them. He prayed that the Lord would bless them with the demonstration of His great grace. These are the type of things that Paul was praying for this young church in the city of Thessalonica. Now, in this season of your life that you're in right now, this season of life that I'm in right now, the Lord's trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach you things. He's trying to teach me things. He wants us to know Him better, and He wants our confidence in the process that He's trying to accomplish in us to grow. So how do you typically respond to the refinement that the Lord's bringing you through? Or how do you typically respond to the lessons that the Lord is teaching you? I read a story this week, and I won't, I, the names don't immediately come to mind. Uh, but it was a story that recounted something that happened during the era when Soviet Russia existed, when the Soviet Union existed. And there was a lot of oppression there and, and, and a lot of secrecy and a lot of, uh, you know, the, the government would try to stop the free flow of information in their context. And there was a particular man who was trying to write out his memoirs. And in his memoirs, he had a lot of information that he was sharing that really did not present the Soviet government in a very favorable way, and it didn't present communism in a very favorable way. It showed people what it was actually like to live in that kind of context. And he was writing these things out, and uh, as he was doing this, his wife would take, I guess, what he said and his notes, and she would type them for him. And they had to be careful because as he was doing this, those typed manuscripts would regularly get stolen by government officials who were spying on them. And so he would type it out a little bit, and the stuff would, get, it would end up disappearing. I, I don't know if people would break into their house. I'm not exactly sure how it was getting stolen. But I think what happened was people were just getting into their home, taking the paperwork, and removing it, but then he would try again. And I guess he had gotten to a spot where he had had most of it done, and it had gone a long period of time without intervention, and he had most of the manuscript done. And he was getting ready to let this be known, and somehow I guess he had a plan to have it distributed. I don't know if he had contact somewhere or something, but it was going to be distributed, I think is what his intention was. And uh, he happened to be meeting his wife at a train station the one day, 
And when she saw his face as he was meeting her at the train station, she said that it looked as if someone we loved had died. Because he walked up to her and he said, they took it. It was almost done and they took it. I don't still have it. And I guess with her encouragement, he began the process all over again. But this is what she said of that whole process. She said every time he was forced to start over, it was, it was like something came back to his memory that made the new manuscript better than the predecessor. And every time he was forced to refine it and to think it through again and type it all out again, every time it kept getting better. And so there was good that was coming out of that time of refinement. And I mention that because the story of your life and my life is still being written. Still being written. Now, the Lord already knows the outcome. He already knows where He's directing your life and my life. But the life, this, this story that we're living through right now, it's still being written. And He's blessing you and He's blessing me with the kind of experiences that He allows us to endure because it refines us and it makes us stronger. And it helps us grow in holiness, and it helps us depend on Him more, and it helps us grow in maturity, and the Lord receives glory through that. That was what He was doing for the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering. They were growing in holiness and maturity and being refined in their life and in their character as in, a, in a way that only the sovereign hand of God can orchestrate. But that's, again, not unique to them. It's something that the Lord's doing for you and for me as well. And so I say this because... It's easier for me to look at somebody else's trials and appreciate their trials than it is for me to look at my own and, and thank God for them, especially when they're fresh. And so I'm kind of preaching to myself this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture by saying, listen, don't resent your refinement because sometimes I've resented my refinement. Sometimes I've looked at the things that the Lord's allowed me to endure that were on the difficult side, and I'm like, Lord, can this be a quick one? I remember at one point after completing a particular trial... And just saying, all right, Lord, can it be a long time before I have to go through something like this again? So I really asked the Lord that at one point. I was like, can, it, can I just get like a good long stretch before I have to do this again? He didn't give me an answer on that one, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be a good stretch or a long stretch, but sometimes we resent our refinement, even though the Lord brings so many good things out of it. And that's what he was doing for the Thessalonians. They were becoming strong. It's like their hearts were doing push-ups. Their spirit was doing push-ups over and over and over and over again. And the Lord was making them strong. So let me say this as we wrap up. Your greatest hope, my greatest hope, our greatest hope is not in the here and now. This is a lesson the Thessalonians were learning in a powerful way. It's a lesson that God wants us to learn just the same. Our greatest hope is not in the here and now. Good Things are being held in store for those who know Jesus Christ by faith. And if we take that truth to heart, I'm certain that our approach to every circumstance and every season and every challenge will be impacted for the better. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of it together today. And Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you show us through the things that the Thessalonians were hearing and learning and experiencing that our greatest hope is not in the here and now. Lord, you have given us hope beyond our current circumstances. You have given us hope and help uh, in the midst of everything that we deal with. You have given us joy that is not dependent on circumstances. 
and you're using the things that we're going through right now to refine us in meaningful ways, in powerful ways. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that. Lord, we know that you love us deeply. And we know that when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, even though it was initially communicated to people that lived a couple thousand years ago, this is also something, Lord, that has a very fresh application to us. Lord, we know that so often it can be easy for us to feel like our hearts are tethered to the things that we experience right here and now. Sometimes we just want ease. We just want comfort. We just want everything to be easy. And sometimes we idolize ease to the point where we want ease more than we want growth. But Lord, we pray that you would teach us as our faith matures to value the kind of growth that you supply. You grant us growth in the midst of our trials. You grant us growth in the midst of our adversity. You help us not to anchor our hearts to things that can be taken away from us. You show us that we have new life through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're grateful for these these poignant realities that are illustrated in this portion of Scripture. But we're also grateful, Lord, for your great patience. Lord, as we look at this portion of your Word, you tell us that there is a a dreadful future in store for those who reject your Son, Jesus Christ. And even though you're showing us great patience right now, Lord, we know that there are those who will persist in their rejection of your Son. Lord, by your grace, we pray that you would soften the hearts right now of those that we know and love who are still persisting in their rejection of of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by your grace, you would draw them unto yourself, that you'd help them to see the truth of your gospel, that they would desire to come to know you through your Son, and that we might even be instrumental in that process, or that you would bring somebody into their life that they would choose to listen to, who faithfully proclaims the message of the gospel and enables them to to hear that so that they can respond. But Lord, we're grateful for the patience that you've shown us because we did not deserve that patience. We deserved strict and forceful judgment right away, and yet you waited because you knew we were going to come to that spot of repentance. You knew that we were going to repent of our unbelief. You fostered that repentance in our hearts. And so, Father, we're grateful that you've done that for us And we pray that in your mercy that you would do that for those that we love and care about as well. So, Lord, thank you for this reminder from your word today. We pray that it would stay fresh in our minds and fresh in our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.